Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, Paul McGowan and I discussed the foundation of the United States based on highly principled ideals and the subsequent challenges of rapid expansion into the Louisiana and Oregon territories. The challenges will continue in this episode as conflicts with Mexico and Spain create the American geography we know today. Let's begin. With me today on HI101, I've got Paul McGowan. Oh, hi. How's it going? Oh, it's going good. That's good. And last time we talked, uh, we were talking about how the U.S. had basically taken up about, let's say, two-thirds of their continental mass currently, Mm -hmm. and Spain still owned a fairly large chunk of North America. Yes. As well as Mexico. I mean, it was basically their border with the United States south. They owned almost all of south america they owned fairly large holdings so, in the caribbean spain was a big deal so they were doing point. okay they, well yes and no on paper they were doing pretty well um they also owned florida at this point in time mm. and we're talking about sort of 1820-ish point in time here okay. we're, we're gonna rewind a little bit back from where we went with the oregon territory i just sort of wanted to follow through oregon to its logical conclusion of becoming uh the the region of the united states that it is today sure so we're gonna rewind a little bit today basically anything south of that was was spanish territory though so the problem was that things were getting a little bit restless in spanish territory spain took a lot of hits during the napoleonic wars they definitely weren't the power that they used to be and Holding overseas territory is really, really hard to do. I mean, there's long lines of communication. And especially when you have an example like the United States right on your borders, it's hard to convince people to stay subject to a remote European power. Sure. You know, when you have that example of of revolutionary independence and republicanism. Okay, so question then. So Spain, Spain has from California... And then kind of the, the southwest corner of, of what is now the United States and then Florida. Basically, um, yeah. How populated was that Spanish area? Did that, they just like did they just hold it in name or were there actual people there? No, there were settlements along there. If you look okay. at uh, I mean, well, I guess the best example would be if you look at some of the city names in in California these days, Los Angeles, right, San okay. Francisco, San Diego. Those mm-hmm. are Spanish names for a reason. You know what I mean? So there's definitely 
settlements at this point in time that belong to Spain. Yeah. However, the concentration of Spanish like population mm-hmm. was closer to Mexico City. Okay. Mexico City was enormous because that was actually, you know, it was it, it had been taken over from an enormous empire by the Spanish. It was one of the first cities to ever actually um, exceed one million people in population. Wow. So they kind of centered down that way more than close to the American borders. We talked last time about how in 1821 there was a treaty with or between Spain and the United States where Spain basically withdrew their claim anywhere north of the 42nd parallel, which is the, the current northern border of California. They withdrew that claim on the Oregon Territory. During that same treaty in 1821, they actually ceded Florida to the United States. Um, Florida wasn't particularly heavily populated at that point in time. It was cut off from the rest of the Spanish territories, wasn't really making them any money. They just, it wasn't working out for Spain. It made no sense whatsoever for them to keep Florida. So as part of this territory, basically for allowing them to stay as far north as they were in Mexican or in Spanish California, they offered Florida as kind of a, an exchange. Okay. If that makes sense. Now in that, in that same year, and I mean, they were in trouble when we're, when we're talking about this, this land changing hand, Spain wasn't doing great. As I said, in 1821, Mexico actually achieved independence from, from Spain. There's a whole Mexican Revolutionary War that, again, we're just going to kind of leave to one side. Sure. Suffice it to say that it happened and Mexico is now independent. There were also burgeoning independence movements within South America. So a number of the, uh, the countries in, in South America were looking for independence from Spain. There were certain people that were trying to sort of push for that political change, that uh, ideological change that honestly don't really come up that much in, in history when you learn it here in Canada that probably should. They're really fascinating people. There's a there's a guy named um, uh, Simon Bolivar, after whom Bolivia is named, okay. who is, is occasionally re- referred to as the South American George Washington, in that he fought for independence there, and, and in many ways is very analogous to, to George Washington for the independence movements in South America. I mean, it wasn't just Bolivia that he freed. There were a number of countries that he had an effect on. Mm-hmm. Around the same time, something came into effect that you may have heard of called the Monroe Doctrine. Now, James Monroe was one of the people who, if you remember, uh, brokered the deal to purchase the Louisiana Territory from France. Yep. He's now president, so he's done okay for himself. Mm-hmm. He's doing all right. The Monroe Doctrine was basically a doctrine of exclude, uh, excluding European powers from the American Hemisphere. Basically, the entire Western Hemisphere. Okay. What was going on was that all of these countries were revolting against Spain, largely Spain, and the United States wanted to make a policy that basically they didn't want just the next Spain to waltz in and take control on their borders. They were worried that, say, for I mean, this, this wasn't a specific one, but for example, if during the tumult of the Mexican Revolution, if Britain was to come in you know, take over Mexico, all of a sudden they've got an extremely strong British territory right on their western border. They were really worried about that. They really wanted to preserve as much independence and as much autonomy as possible. So they essentially declared to the European powers, stay out of our business. They also made a policy of, we're not getting involved in any European business. 
And this is something of a reaction to the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. Where they're just saying, listen, just leave us out of that. In terms of reactions from European powers, they kind of laughed a little at the Monroe Doctrine. They didn't... I mean, the United States is still a relatively small country. It doesn't have an incredibly powerful navy at this point in time. There's not a lot of ways that it can really protect, uh, project power overseas. Mm. So, but they, they kind of humored them, and that's sort of the, the important part, was that they actually, no matter what their opinion of the Monroe Doctrine was, they did stay out of American affairs. And it allowed for sort of this, this gradual fall of a number of nations, or most of the nations in South America, in terms of Spanish colonies and the, the growth of independent nations in South America. So how did, how did the Monroe Doctrine work? Because didn't, wasn't the United States still doing a lot of trade with France and with Britain? Or is that... Yes, but that's not something that's covered under the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine is more about... There was this idea at the time of something called spheres of influence. Okay. So there's this idea that you have this sort of hard border around your country and within those borders, you're a sovereign power and you get to set laws and you get to enforce laws and things like that. But there's also sort of this vague area around you where your political power actually has any sort of meaning. It makes sense, yeah. And so a good example, well, one, one that I was talking about int- uh, recently, which is why it comes to mind, is something like uh, a small country like Luxembourg, say. Mm-hmm. Right next to Germany, right? Technically an independent state, right? It has its own laws. It has its own government. It has technically its own self-determination. But it's within Germany's sphere of influence. So what happens in Germany definitely has an effect on Luxembourg. And you can't really ignore that, um, what they call soft power. The Monroe Doctrine was more about soft power in the political sense, where... They wanted, they wanted to exert influence over basically the entire Western Hemisphere, basically saying, "Listen, okay, if you know, yes, there are still some British colonies uh, on the north coast of South America. Yes, there are still some British colonies in the Caribbean. Yes, there are still some Spanish colonies in the Caribbean. That's okay. I mean, those are yours. They belong to you, but no more. Like we're drawing a line." No new power. We're not going to tolerate any new powers coming in and asserting dominance over these countries. They're now under the watch of the United States. Okay. Whether or not they had the ability to enforce that doesn't matter because no one challenged it. Right. And, and the other side of that, not getting involved in European policies, was something that sort of contributed to what's known as American isolationism, which was a policy that held up until the First World War, Mm -hmm. which was basically saying, look, the rest of the world, not our problem. Like, we don't want to get involved. We're not an imperial power. We have our sphere of influence, which is the Americas, and that's it. What that meant going forward, and we're jumping ahead a little bit here, what that meant going forward for South America was, you know, at first this was embraced by people like Bolivar, where they're going great, we don't have to worry about European powers getting involved when we're trying to declare independence against Spain. That's fantastic. But the flip side of that was, hang on, the United States feel like they're entitled to become involved in our policies to some extent, right? Right. And it wasn't, at least at this point in time, it wasn't a pervasive thing and it wasn't, a, it wasn't an aggressive thing. 
But there was sort of this feeling that at least within the Western Hemisphere, the United States really started establishing dominance at this point in time where they're sort of the preeminent power in the region. This was probably most acutely felt in 1836 when the Republic of Texas declared independence from Mexico. For a while, Texas was an independent state. It was a country. There was a country of Texas. Okay. Um, This is another one that, that not a lot of people know about. It only lasted nine years. It wasn't that long, but there was a country of Texas in North America for a while. I feel like there are countries who have had shorter runs than than nine years. Most likely. I mean, the, the weird thing, too, about this period of time, especially in the Americas, when there's all this rearranging, is that there's there's a number of places that you don't really realize were independent in any way that, that, that were at some point in time. I mean, this is completely off topic, but I'm not sure if you were ever aware that... Uh, Newfoundland was actually its own country for a while. Didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, for a few years. Yeah, before they before they joined Canada, it was it was an independent. It, it declared independence from from Great Britain. It was part of the Commonwealth, but it was its own. What a remote, nation. snowy country. <laughs> yeah, so you get these things come up every once in a while that you know they 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 burn they burn out quickly. They're not sustainable, but. You know, when you look back at the history, there was a time when they were they were self determining. They were their own state, mm-hmm. and state in the in the global sense, not just a, as a political body within the United States. Now, when they declared independence from Mexico, already a majority of the citizens actually favored joining the United States, and this is sort of the situation that Jefferson. When he was thinking about the Louisiana Purchase, this was the situation he wanted. This was sort of the dream of all these founding fathers, some of whom were still, a few of whom were still around to see this, that there would be a state on their borders that would say, please take us in. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to be part of the United States. The problem is that there weren't quite enough of them. I mean, it it was a majority that wanted this. But they weren't able to actually organize a, the actual steps that it would take to join uh, the Union. So creating the, uh, or, or holding the, the referendum and having a, a vote to join. There were enough people that still wanted Texas to be its own independent uh, political entity, mm-hmm. that there was a lot of opposition to that. This is about the time when a phrase starts coming up that you've most likely heard called manifest destiny. Yeah, this is an idea that's kind of it, it sprang out of American exceptionalism, which we talked about last time. Which is this idea that America is special, that it's better to be under America than it is to be anywhere else, because then you are equal to your fellow man, then you have all of these natural rights, then you have all of this political freedom. It's it's just better. Manifest destiny was this idea that, for one reason, one reason or another. The United States was was destined to spread across North America, possibly even into South America, depending on who you talk to about what manifest destiny meant. Yeah, many people at this time would claim that they had been ordained by God to do so. Like there was a lot of very serious language floating around it. I mean, again, like we talked about last time, when you start talking about things like. Uh, a divine destiny to do something that's really putting yourself out there mm-hmm. because 
yes, it makes big claims about yourself, but it also puts a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure on you to follow through. For sure. So there's a lot of people that are going, listen, we are going to take all of North America anyways. Texas wanting to join us. We might as well just make this happen because sooner or later it's going to happen anyways. Okay. And you'll remember the the Louisiana purchase. It just kind of fell into their laps. They were, you know, they were fine with taking it when it when it came to them that easily. Texas was not actually asking to join. I mean, many citizens were, but as a political entity, weren't actually actually asking to join uh, the United States. But there was definitely this kind of groundswell of of public opinion that mm, let's just roll in there and take Texas. It's what they want. Mm-hmm. It's what's going to happen. Let's just do it. I have a quick geography question. Sure. So when you say when you say that Texas wanted to to join the United States from Mexico, mm-hmm. when Mexico declared independence, did Mexico run uh, like from its current borders, and then did they were they in the Spanish territory now up to California? So they occupied. Yes. Oh, okay. okay. Yep. All of what is now California. Arizona, Nevada, uh, New Mexico, like that that whole Texas, that whole region was technically Mexico. Cool. It was an enormous it was an enormous country. But as we can see, people weren't all that satisfied with it. They weren't exactly doing a great job of hanging on to it. So this idea of manifest destiny, that that phrase actually came from a journalist named John O'Sullivan in 1845, but I mean it'd been around a lot longer. Mm-hmm. O'Sullivan was absolutely pro annexing texas he thought this is what america is meant to do we should just go ahead and do it so in 1844 a president that probably gets a lot less recognition than he deserves was elected uh, james k polk i don't know if you've heard of him possibly only from the they might be giants song (laughs) i heard the name before yeah (laughs) James K. Polk was an interesting man. He was a very, very interesting president. He promised a number of things. He promised an independent and self-regulating U.S. Treasury, which really isn't important to what we're talking about. He promised to deal with the abolitionists, um, slavery abolitionists, in a way that would work out for both sides. Okay. And Which he actually did a fairly good job of. And... He promised to wage war against Mexico and expand the borders of the United States. <laughs> and the last thing that he pro- promised was that he was going to do this in one term and he was not going to run for presidency again. That's ballsy. Yeah. James K. Polk was a cool guy. I mean, I don't exactly agree with all of his policies, but in terms of, in terms of like election day promises... He is like number one in my book. That's that's a drop the mic moment. <laughs> really and is. I'll do it in one term, and then drops the mic and walks off stage. He said, "I have I have these goals. I'm gonna do them, and then I'm gonna be done. Why Why would I stick around if I've completed my goals?" Wow. So as I said, he became president in 1844. In 1845, Texas was annexed by the United States, just like that. They rolled in with the uh, with the military. There wasn't much uh, re- there wasn't much resistance from Texas. As I said, there were enough people that wanted that to happen 
that it was a relatively painless experience. Sure. And you'll notice that this is a big departure from even 40 years before with Louisiana Territory, where people are agonizing over buying one city, let alone an entire territory. Basically, they said, well, this is probably going to happen because America is so great. And I'm simplifying greatly here. But they said, this is going to happen anyways. We might as well just hurry along the process. They did so, and things worked out for them. Texas was happy to join. And all of a sudden, you've got the situation in, in the United States where expansionism is working out for them pretty well. I mean, sure. the annexation of Texas was pretty painless. And they're going, well, okay, well, that, that was easy. Now there's Mexican California. Might as well make this C to C thing, you know, make a count. Why don't we roll in there, right? So in 1846, the next year, they sent an offer to Mexico to purchase California for $30 million. It's not a lot of money. I mean, we talked about the steel that they got the Louisiana Purchase for. That was ridiculously cheap. Yeah. $30 million for California. California is good land. That was turned down by Mexico, and I, I can't really blame them. On May 11th, 1846, apparently, allegedly, Mexican troops crossed the Rio Grande into Texas. They killed 11 American soldiers. James K. Polk said, well, sounds like war to me. <laughs> and so began the Mexican-American War. They full-on declared war against Mexico. Uh, went on for about 20 months. There's not a lot to really say about the war. The American army was much better than the Mexican army. It ended basically with the capture of Mexico City by American troops. And the way they ended it, you know, the, the, the peace treaty that was put into effect um, stipulated that Mexico had to sell California to the United States for $15 million. So half of what they originally said. <laughs> they, they also assumed three and a quarter million dollars of debt that Mexico owed to U.S. citizens. So it works out to a little more than $18 million really that they paid for California. But still, uh, they, they basically just took California from Mexico. So now, when you say that, that Mexican troops allegedly crossed the border into Texas and killed 11 American soldiers, is it, is it theorized that that was fabricated like as a pretense for war? Mexico claimed that if they did, they didn't realize that they were in Texan territory. Okay. Um, and it's still sort of up for grabs what exactly happened. Sure. I mean, you've got to remember, too, at this point in time, it's not as though that was a heavily populated area. Right. It's when you don't have, say, roads or or border gates or, you know, anything like that. Yeah. It can be like, if you get lost, you can easily cross a border. It can happen if you're close to the border. Yeah. Mistakes can mistakes can definitely happen. Whether or not Mexican troops deliberately crossed the border into U.S. sovereign soil and whether or not they killed 11 American soldiers, whether they did so maliciously or whether they did so mistakenly, like all of that is really unclear. Yeah. 
But you have to remember that James K. Polk ran on a platform of expansionism and basically promised in his, you know, in his inaugural speech that he was going to take this land from Mexico. So, I mean, A plus on keeping campaign promises in terms of finding good reasons to go to war, I feel like maybe he could, and, and again, we don't know what happened, but it's very possible that he seized on the first thing that even looked remotely like a cause for a war. Mm-hmm. He was a little bit out of control on that end of things. And it's not, it's not as though, I don't want to give the impression that Polk was incredibly anti-Mexican. It's not that Polk was like incredibly hawkish or anything like that. Like he wasn't, it wasn't so much that he was itching to go to war. Like he wasn't, occasionally you get presidents that are, they, they want to go, they, they want to fight somebody. Yeah. That's not why Polk did this. I mean, that's, that's definitely the, the outcome of it. He did it because he believed in the expansion of America and he ran on a platform of expansionism and people elected him on that platform, which he took as a mandate from the American people that they also wanted expansion. Sure. I know that gets a little bit nuanced, but he wasn't just looking for a fight. He was doing it on ideological terms. Okay. And again, that's, that's one of those things with the United States where it's like, are you, are you working on ideological grounds? Are you working on practical grounds? Is it a convergence of the two things? I, I mean, often it's a meeting between the two extremes, right? Mm-hmm. But in other times, you're sort of perverting one to fit the, fit the agenda of the other. And in this case, he's, he's taking practicality, namely the, the um, so-called act of war of these Mexican soldiers killing 11 American soldiers... He's taking that practicality and using it to justify his ideological means. And and would I be correct in assuming that most of most of the people around the time that of the the Louisiana Purchase, most of those people who were you know, like Jefferson, who was iffy uh, on that, those those guys are out of the picture at this point. Yeah, very much. So. I assume they would have strongly opposed. Say annexing Texas. We're talking about we're talking about the 1840s at this point, right? So we're talking a good 50 years after. Okay, so the the Revolutionary War. So yeah, those guys are out of the picture. Okay, yeah. And one thing that you'll one thing that you kind of notice after a while in terms of revolutions is that there's always sort of this first generation that lived through a revolution that really buys it, that really believes in the the ideology of the revolution really believes in the reasons for it happening sure and then what you often see afterwards and it depends on which you know it depends on which one you're talking about but you often see a generation that comes after that that's been sort of they've been raised on the revolution without actually having gone through the things that the previous generation revolted against sure and they'll often take the ideals of the revolution and sort of twist them to their own means so a good, a good example would be Stalin in Soviet Russia, right? You have this generation of Russians that go through the Russian Revolution, that they're revolting against the, the Tsar. They're, they're, you know, sort of looking for a way out of what was practically a serf society at, this, at that point in time. And rather than having actually lived through that feudal oppression, 
you know, Stalin, although he knew Lenin, although he knew Trotsky, all those all these people that actually, you know, really believed in the cause, he took all these ideas from the cause and sort of used it for his own ends, right? Like to mm-hmm. consolidate power and ended up being uh, arguably far worse than the czars ever were. Not to say that Polk is in any way comparable to Stalin. <laughs> I just realized how bad that comparison was going. So let's jump off that train right now. I get the idea, though. Let's. Yeah, I mean, he 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 was never. Polk never really, in a meaningful way, had to live under British oppression. Mm-hmm. So he's been raised on this idea of American exceptionalism. And is using it and, and, and believes in it. I don't want to mean I, I don't want to imply that he's disingenuous about it. He believes in it, but the reason that those ideals exist isn't it, it's an it's an abstract for him. So expanding into Texas, while it seems like the right thing to do, maybe maybe has lost sight of some of those revolutionary ideals, but he doesn't quite have the context the context to to understand that or to recognize that sure and and I, I i tend to give polk a lot of latitude mostly because of his one term thing and i know that's a small thing i, I know that's a small thing I, I get that he could have been an awful guy i don't know enough about polk uh to really make that sort of call but i don't think that somebody who's doing it for personal gain would have only done one term i think that's a reasonable expectation or a, a reasonable assumption to make sure and, I mean, he, he followed through. At the end of his term in 1848, he did not run again for the presidency. And three months after he stepped down from the presidency, he died. Yeah. He, he was done. He was, he was serious about it. Wow. Yeah. I believe it was cholera. I mean, he was, it was pretty awful. But, like... You can't follow through any more than he did. Mm-hmm. That's that's about the limit. Really interesting guy. Very, very interesting guy. You should look into him a little bit more. So all of a sudden they have all of this territory that would become California. Right? Again, unorganized territory. Basically just a big massive land under federal control. Until a guy named James W. Marshall found some gold in 1848. And he told some people about it. And all of a sudden it became big news. And the next thing you know, thousands of people are rushing west to California in 1849. You've heard the, the 49ers. Yeah. That's what this refers to as a, the year 1849. In which no way. Thousands of people rushed to California in search of gold, hoping to make their fortune. Oh, that's super cool. Yep. Due to these actions of buying California combined with this gold rush, California is now one of the most populous states in the United States. Mm-hmm. They filled up the, the west coast of the United States very, very quickly and really made good of, on their whole sea to shining sea thing. And with that, the continental U.S. was essentially complete. It was whole. That is the continental U.S. There were minor tweaks here and there that I've really left out. Like you don't care that there was one county that went back and forth between texas once or twice <laughs> it, like it doesn't matter yeah. it's, it's interesting marshall county is kind of interesting in the grand scheme of things it doesn't matter we'll stick to the big things now yes that's the continental united states but spain was still in north america and that 
caused some problems for the United States in terms of policy, in terms of the Monroe Doctrine, in terms of sort of enlightening other people and their continued existence in North America really led to some interesting consequences, but we'll get to that right after this break. All right, we're back with HI 101 here with Paul McGowan. Howdy. How's it going? It's good. I'm learning a lot. That's good. Before the break, we were talking about uh, James K. Polk and his expansionist uh, policies. Cool guy. He was all right. I, uh, I'm a fan. Basically, once Polk got Texas into the Union, there was a bit of a problem in that Texas was a slave state. And Texas had a huge population and a huge landmass, and this bothered the North with all their free states. It would have, yeah. Yeah. So they started getting a little bit antsy about that because at this point in time, slavery in the Union hadn't really become a huge issue. It was sort of there underneath the surface, but it hadn't really come to public attention. Mm -hmm. Certain states were slave states, certain states were free states, and that's just sort of how it was. This started making people nervous. So the way they ended up dealing with this was with something called the Compromise of 1850. Okay. And this was designed specifically to try and settle everybody down a little bit. They figure it probably delayed Civil War by at least a decade. I mean, the the Civil War started in 1861, so uh, it's more an argument of how specifically useful this compromise was as opposed to when it would have happened naturally kind of thing because again we're looking at practicality versus ideology in the united states there was always going to be a point at which people were going to say we can't claim to be a completely free republic and still own human beings as property that was gonna happen yeah it was it was coming what they did with uh, the compromise of 1850 was, first of all, they made California a free state. Okay. This was no big deal for Californians because California isn't really conducive to slave uh, a slave economy. Also, a lot of the people in California were Hispanic and the whole race relations thing. I mean, in, in, in 1850, if you're Hispanic, you're considered not white, and that's good enough to have you as a second-class citizen. Mm-hmm. So it makes things really, really difficult. They were more than happy to be a free state. The other thing they did was establish what was called the Missouri Compromise Line. So basically the northern border of Missouri, they drew a line you know, east-west across the top border of Missouri. Basically said any new states that are created north of this border will be free. South of this border will be slave states. Now, neither side was really super happy with this, but it worked just well enough to kind of keep tensions down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Another way of looking at it, though, was that it really delineated who was going to be on which side when things got bad. Yeah, you're drawing a line in the sand. It sort of polarized things a little bit. The other thing that came up in the compromise was something called the Fugitive Slave Act which basically said that all it took to bring a slave back to the South, even in a free state, was for somebody to say, 
that's my slave. It was like there was there was a lot of burden of proof on a free person of color in the north at this point in time. Before this, it was a lot easier to live as as a as a person of color in the north in a free state without having to worry about uh, slave hunters coming along and saying, "Oh yeah, this one's definitely a, an escaped slave," mm-hmm. and not really needing any proof for it. Which I assume happened somewhat regularly. The numbers are iffy on that one, but okay. yeah, there's there's evidence. It, like it it happened. It definitely happened. There were also fines put in place for federal employees if they did not report escaped slaves, and there were fines put in place for people harboring escaped slaves. This is basically where the underground railroad starts, okay. where you have people ferrying up to um, what today would be Canada. Mm-hmm. which, I mean, British territories, slavery was abolished completely. There's non-extradition treaties with the United States. Like, they're not going to send slaves back. This is where you start seeing people moving all the way from the Deep South into Canada just to escape the, the reach of slavery. Because even moving up to, say, New York or, or uh, Vermont or Maine isn't really enough at this point in time because somebody can come along and say this is an escaped slave even if they had purchased their freedom oh, that's brutal yes it's it's a horrible horrible thing it's awful again we're, we're running into a thing where it's it's impossible to overstate just just how awful this is yeah so we're gonna we're gonna kind of stick fairly um, we're, we're going to say fairly light on the Civil War because, again, it could probably do with its own topic at some point in time. It's a fairly complex issue. There's a lot of stuff ended up happening. But in terms of territorial changes in the United States, in 1861, the Confederate States of America was formed. You're looking at Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, North and South Carolina, Virginia... And you also have Missouri, which had two governments going at the time. Like, they were split. Some of them were fighting for each side. Kentucky, same deal, split. And unorganized Indian territory that would eventually become Oklahoma, also split. So of of the 13 original colonies, was it just Virginia that was a member of the... What was it called? The Confederate United States? Confederate States of America. Okay. The Carolinas and Georgia were also original 13 colonies. Okay. So there, there were those ones. But a lot of the original 13 colonies were further north. I mean, you have to remember that Florida was Spanish territory, so mm-hmm. they tended a little bit further north. And the northern states tended to be smaller. So kind of a smaller number of further north states ended up being free states. That Missouri line was drawn largely because... When states had the choice of whether or not to go slave state or free state, it had kind of worked itself out along that line anyways. Sure. So new states that were north of that line tended to be free states as well. We won't get too, too much into the, as as I said, we won't get too, too much into the Civil War. What's really notable about all of this is that 1865, at the end of the Civil War, there was uh, some more reorganization of states. There were a couple of states that were split up. There were a number of states that were created throughout the course of the, the war. So all of that was still kind of going on. Again, we're not going to get into every single state, you know, what month and what year they were created because there's 50 of them. Yeah. But yeah, it definitely did lead to some reorganization. Um, and after the war with the Emancipation Proclamation, 
you no longer had that issue of the Missouri line of where, you know, which states were free and which were slave. They're, they're all free states now. Uh, near this time, also in 1867, Alaska was purchased from Russia. So the Russians were basically done with this whole coast game. They just sure. wholesale bought the entire territory from Russia. Quick question. I don't know if it's an easy question. There are, there are a, a ton of states yep. compared to, and I mean, that was one of my curiosities at the beginning. Canada's got a couple of provinces spanning the east to west. And America's got got fifty states. Mm-hmm. Now, was that just because it was a it was a slow progression? You'd have pockets of people who were ready to hold a referendum and form a state. Essentially, yes. Okay, that's that's kind of the the easy answer to it. Is as soon as they were hitting quorum to hold the referendum that would lead to uh, eventual admission into the union, people were doing so. Okay, I mean. Even, even living in an organized territory where you have constitutional rights still doesn't bring you as many benefits as living in a full, a full state. The biggest difference being representation in the federal government. For sure. Right? If you're, even if you're in an organized state, you're not getting your two senators. You're not getting your representatives based on population. You're not getting that say in the federal government. So the sooner you can you can incorporate as a state, the better. Mm-hmm. The other thing too is that, I mean, partially because of its its climate being further south, there's a lot higher population density in the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the number of cities just in the U.S., it's it's far higher than what we've got in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the Prairie Provinces, you're looking at a couple of major cities, you know, a handful of major cities, and that encompasses the entire, the, the entire province. Mm-hmm. And with the Prairie Provinces, you know, there's, there's very little difference between, you know, northern Manitoba and southern uh, Northwest Territories. Basically, anything, anything more than a third of the way um, away from the, the American border is practically wilderness yeah so the provincial borders were drawn by the federal government essentially and they were established a long time ago it's just that climate wise it's not practical for us to extend to those borders Mm -hmm. i'm sure that if somehow the case was that there was a major city say in northern alberta that had a large enough population and a large enough local influence to ask for it, there, there's a chance that a province like that could be split and a, a new province created. It's just that you can't really make that happen without enough people to warrant it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at a legislature that's based on population for its members, if you don't, like, if you don't have a certain number of population, the numbers work out so that you have less than one representative. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's it's largely it's largely a function of population, and that that population comes out of climate in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So, we we had just mentioned Alaska just before this. Um, there were actually border disputes with Canada between Alaska and Canada until 1903, uh, until that border was finalized, and the the issue of contention was 
how far down does Alaska come? Because Alaska was claiming all of this coastline that looks like it should be British Columbia. And the United States actually ended up walking away with coastline all the way down to 5440. And it's a very narrow strip. If you look at a map, it's a very narrow strip that comes down from Alaska. Mm-hmm. The thing that's useful from that is the coastline. Yeah. It gets all the fishing rights. U.S. won that one. They definitely won that one over, the, over Canada. They got the better end of the deal. But that was finalized in 1903. Again, no more border disputes with Canada uh, in terms of Alaska. In 1898, something really interesting happened. Cuba started a war of independence against Spain. Okay. It was one of the few still Spanish territories in, in the Americas. Remember that even in the early 1800s, you know, the 1820s, 1830s, a lot of these com- or a lot of these countries were declaring independence from Spain successfully and that under the Monroe Doctrine, the United States was saying we are rejecting any European influence in the region. Cuba was still owned by Spain and they allowed that, or the United States allowed that. But once the Cubans started fighting for independence, there was sort of this, there are a few interesting things that happened. Number one, they started seeing themselves in the Cubans. They saw the the struggle of the Cubans against the sort of oppressive Spanish regime as analogous to themselves a couple hundred years before. Uh, or, or rather, a hundred and a bit years before, uh, struggling against the oppressive British regime. So sure. they, they really identified with the with the Spanish rebels. The other thing that came up, and, and you really can't talk about this, this period in uh, American history without mentioning these guys, is something called yellow journalism. Have you heard the term? No, no. never. So two men that you may have heard of, Joseph Pulitzer, mm-hmm. he had a prize named after him, and William Randolph Hearst, he was disgustingly wealthy. Okay. Both of whom owned a lot of newspapers. They they were pulling for war. Because war is good for business when you're in the paper industry. <laughs> it's, I, I mean, and this is a point in time where you've got the Carnegies, you've got like all these really wealthy families in power, the robber barons, if you will. That, that had a lot of influence over policy, that had a lot of influence over business, that were kind of pulling strings on things like this. And, you know, to be, to be fair, yellow journalism, they, they don't think had as much impact on, all, on the events to come as, as we used to think, but they're still significant in terms of public opinion. These two, these, these two Pulitzer and, and Hearst, were both sort of spinning the media as much as possible in favor of war. Yellow journalism is sort of this idea of using journalism in order to further your own means. It's usually used in conjunction with warmongering. Okay. <laughs> Hearst once said to one of his illustrators, basically, that he asked the illustrator to draw pictures of the, of the, the, um, the conflict between Americans and, and Spanish in Cuba because the Americans were starting to get a little bit involved with helping out the Cubans, and the illustrator said, that's not really happening. There's no war going on. And Hearst said, you provide the illustrations, I'll provide the war. (laughs) Yeah. So that's yellow journalism in a nutshell. Yeah. The Americans sent some battleships to Havana Harbor to provide protection for the, the revolutionaries there. One of these ships called the Maine 
one night exploded. We don't know why. To this day, we still don't know why. Mm -hmm. There was a known flaw in these battleships in that the... um, the powder magazines tended to, or the ammunition magazines tend to be, tend to be very close to the engine rooms. Okay. And there had been failures in this particular design of, of battleship. It's also possible that it was destroyed by the Spanish. Mm-hmm. I can tell you which one of those stories Hearst and Pulitzer were running in their newspapers. As soon as the main was sunk, they were basically saying, oh, war with Spain. There wasn't actually a war yet. But they definitely helped to get public opinion on their side. Again, uh, I think it's been a little bit overstated in the past how much influence they had on this. I think a better way to look at this is that they were very reflective of public opinion at the time, where people were seeing the American role in the Caribbean and in the Western Hemisphere as a whole as one of being protectors, even to the point of intervention in the matters of other states mm-hmm. right i mean because really when you think about it a, a cuban revolution against spain isn't really the business of the americans it's got very little to do with them yeah except that cuba is very close to florida and they're worried about sort of protecting their sphere of influence which sure. is something we talked about earlier so in in terms of soft power they are interested in who ends up in power in cuba but they're not being directly attacked in any way, right? Still, I mean, when you combine this with things like Manifest Destiny of spreading across the Americas, when you uh, combine it with things like exceptionalism in terms of sort of providing the rest of the world with an example, all of a sudden it seems like, well, maybe getting involved in Cuba makes a little bit of sense. One of the biggest proponents for getting involved was Theodore Roosevelt. You know, he's he's a pretty cool president, but when you look at the reasons behind some of his policies, he he reminds me of a little boy in a lot of ways. <laughs> he he wanted to play at war, and this was a really good opportunity for it. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Rough Riders, but basically, he and a bunch of buddies got together and put together like they put together a little squad that technically was fighting for the United States, but wasn't really an organization of the U.S. military, but, like, offered themselves to the U.S. military. They just wanted to go fight. They hadn't had a good war in a while. (laughs) And the thing is, the Spanish weren't that difficult a fight. They're so weakened by the the, the Cuban rebels, and they were already in bad shape that it it, it was very, very easy for them to fight in Cuba when the American... You know, when, when the U.S. finally sent troops to Cuba, when they finally declared war after the sinking of the Maine, when they declared war on Spain, they didn't really come up against that much resistance. The biggest thing that they had to deal with was yellow fever. Tons of troops died from yellow fever. I have sort of an unrelated question. Sure. So so Cuba is under, under the control of Spain, mm-hmm. and, and they're fighting for their independence. Yes. How does word how does word get to America that that there's any kind of a conflict going on? Like who's who's traveling between Cuba and and the United States to to kind of convey that news? We are talking about 1898 here. Mm-hmm. There is trade between Cuba and, okay. Okay. and the United States. It's not as though and I mean Cuba is not that far from Florida. 
Like it's not nearly as isolated as maybe it, it seems at first blush. Yeah. And I mean, besides which in, in 1898, like communication globally, especially for the press is at an all time high. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can hear about things happening overseas almost instantaneously with the, uh, I, I mean, you've got telegraph lines and things like that that are, that are, uh, transmitting this information okay practically instantly so as i said they got involved in in cuba to assist with liberation and in the process annexed cuba that sounds like it just sort of happened really what was happening there was that they were worried that the new cuba two things they were worried that the new cuba would be taken over by another european power other than spain and they were fighting to stop that Two, they had a deal with Cuba, basically, that they wouldn't... They had had a deal with, with Spain that they wouldn't take Cuba from Spain, but they saw this as annexing a free Cuba, which kind of circumvents that. And three, due to ideas of exceptionalism, they felt that the Cuban people would probably just want to be part of the United States anyways. Of course. At the same time as this whole, I mean, this is referred to as the Spanish-American War. It didn't last that long. I believe it was 10 weeks long. But at the same time, they sent ships into the harbor at Manila in the Philippines, which was also a Spanish holding. And they managed to take Manila. And all of a sudden, Philippines was also under American control. They went to Guam, which was a Spanish holding. They fired on the fort there a number of times. A guy rode out in a boat, apologized to them that they couldn't return their salute because they were out of gunpowder at the moment. (laughs) They informed this man that, no, actually, there was a war on between Spain and the United States. The man said, oh. And they took Guam without a fight. (laughs) They also took uh, Puerto Rico. There were some inconsequential battles in Puerto Rico. It didn't really go one way or the other. Probably, like, the fighting was fiercest in Puerto Rico at this point in time. Sure. However, once once Cuba was basically entirely cut off from Spain, the war was over. They went and they worked out terms with, with Spain. And one of the terms was that Puerto Rico was ceded to the United States. At the risk of understating things, this put the United States in an awkward position. <laughs> Because all of a sudden they had a bunch of overseas territories, which looks a lot like imperialism. Yes, it does. And they were getting, they they were intervening in the matters of other states, which is really counter to the sort of principles of republicanism, right? And the ideas of sovereign nations. All of a sudden with the Spanish-American War, what started off as like a you know, they would, they would talk about it as like sort of like a fun little war sort of thing, right? What started off as like almost an exercise, almost a almost a leisurely pastime, ends up making the United States look no different than any other European power because they're getting involved in countries that have nothing to do with them, really. They have territories overseas that are largely economic powerhouses without, without actually giving them statehood. And, you know, you you can't really ignore it. These territories are all non-white people, Mm -hmm. which was a feature of colonialism 
you know, sort of from the 1800s on that, that it tended to be non-whites that were, that were subjugated under the colonial system. That triggered a bit of a, triggered a bit of an identity crisis for the United States because they sort of went, what are we doing? At about the same time as all this was going on, Hawaii was also annexed. Hawaii is a completely different story. There was a bunch of stuff going on there. There had been a kingdom of Hawaii where the leadership crumbled and basically the United States stepped in to prevent utter chaos, but in the process decided the best move was to annex them. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden the United States stretches across the globe with all these tiny islands here and there. And a lot of these ended up being sort of given back eventually. I mean, Cuba only lasted under U.S. rule for a couple of years until it kind of gained its own independence. Uh, Manila revolted against the Americans. Um, Philippines is currently a, an independent state. But there are others, Puerto Rico being the most obvious example, that are still U.S. territories, but they aren't states. And I mean, there was discussion at the time that was to distill it to its essence. Do we let these people become part of the U.S.? They're not white. Wow. We're grading on a curve for racism. (laughs) It's still pretty bad. And so you have this ideal of the United States on one hand of this beacon of freedom. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. How do you justify that? When, you know, only 30 years before you finished a war over whether or not one man can own another based on this color of his skin. How do you justify that when people are arguing that you can't let Puerto Rico be a state? Not, not, for, not for reasons of population, not for reasons of economy, not for reasons of logistics, but because of the, 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 the race of the population. How do, you, how do you claim to be holding up those values? How do, you, how do you make it work that you believe that all people are equal when, or when, you, when you have sort of national debate over whether or not it's okay to admit these people? How do you justify the fact that you have always claimed to be anti-imperial, anti-intervention, when you have literally just intervened in another power's affairs on behalf of someone within your sphere of influence, which is the definition of interventionism and subsequently taken those territories but given them a lower designation than a full state in your political system which is kind of the definition of imperialism yeah i wish i had good answers for those questions unfortunately the united states doesn't so i can't really offer them the problem with the growth of the united states overall is trying to make it stay in keeping with its founding beliefs, right? Yeah. By the time you get to the Spanish-American War in 1898, it kind of feels like maybe they lost sight, at least on some level, of what they were fighting against in 1776. But the thing that's really interesting about this is that I don't think that it's so far removed as to be completely contrary. Because the reasons that they went, the, the reasons that they annexed those territories were based in revolutionary ideas, right? The city on the hill. For the sure. Beacon to all mankind. An example to, an example to the world of what freedom could be. They did this 
out of a sense of duty to everyone that they spread these revolutionary ideals to them, that they make life better for them. Well, and that's, and that's especially interesting just in the last five, six years, because when you consider the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and all the calls during those wars for America to kind of pull back from that interventionist stance, and now you have conflicts in, in Ukraine and, and people are asking, well, where is America? And it's kind of, it seems like it's bouncing, public opinion seems to be bouncing back and forth. And that's the demon that the United States sort of faces on an international level is no matter what they do, they'll be criticized because they've set Mm -hmm. themselves so high, right? But you get the criticism, something bad is happening across the world. Why aren't you intervening? You're supposed to be a beacon of freedom. And then they go intervene and people say, why are you intervening? You're supposed to be anti-imperial. Yeah. You're supposed to be all about self-determinism. How do you, how do you win? Yeah. It seems like they almost back themselves into a corner from the get-go without realizing it. I, I feel to some small extent that American exceptionalism is, is more of a curse than it is a benefit to the United States. They've set themselves in an impossible position. Mm-hmm. We're going to end with the Spanish-American War because, you know, from here on out we get into, you know, the world wars, things like that. And really your, your, your fundamental question of how do we go from the 13 states or the 13 colonies to the U.S. that we know now at this point has been answered. Mm-hmm. But I also cut it off because even though this issue has kind of gone through multiple image changes it's still an issue that exists for the united states today and i think you really hit the nail on the head with things like intervention in in uh, in iraq calls for intervention intervention in ukraine recent uh recent things that have come out with uh with syria mm-hmm. um, when, when when you've when you've set yourself apart when you've set yourself as something separate from the rest of world history and when you're so closely scrutinized how do you how do you act in a in an acceptable way to everyone else? Yeah, well, and the, and and the whole discussion starting from that that point of American exceptionalism has put everything from you know the last two decades of my life into better context now, which is which is very cool. I think it's really important that people know why, because mm-hmm. I don't think I, I I feel like not enough people realize what the what the cultural and historical context for for these actions are, because it's there. You can you can you can trace straight line from the founding of America to to their current world policies in in some form or another. And when you look at this idea of them striving to meet the ideals that they've set up for themselves, it's it's all right there. Mm-hmm. It's all very clearly laid out. All of their actions make just a little bit more sense. And I think that's important for people to know. Absolutely. So I think that's all I have for today. Was there anything else that I didn't hit on that you'd like to ask about or? No, no, that was uh, very, very informative. That was a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you.
Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about various witch trials throughout history and their place in political, social, and religious life. That episode will be available October 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.